Welcome, everyone. Today on the PyRite podcast, we have Yixing, CEO and founder of Keystone. I'm very happy to invite him to the PyRite podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bong. So uh, I'll just give a very brief introduction of Yixing and his project. Yixing has a background in Bitcoin. And the reason why I've invited him to talk on the PyRite podcast today is because I think Bitcoiners are often the OG of the OG. They usually have start. They usually start their uh, journey in cryptocurrencies all the way back with Satoshi, the man himself. And because of that, they often inherit the security and philosophical concerns that motivated Satoshi to invent Bitcoin. So their culture is often very distinct. And I feel, for one, those concerns are still very, very relevant, if not ever more relevant today. Though. We mortals oftentimes don't know well enough how to actually um, execute upon those concerns and considerations. So I'm very excited today to learn more about um, how that translates into action, about Bitcoin maximalism, their culture, especially how that culture translates into questions and actions to enable and preserve decentralization, financial sovereignty, and most importantly, security best practices, which is something I think none of us do well enough. So uh, before we start, ladies and gentlemen, nothing said here is to be taken as financial advice. Myself and my relations may or may not have positions in the projects interview on this podcast. Do your own research. And this podcast is simply for educational and entertainment purposes. Furthermore, boys and girls, there's no need to take whatever said here to be an attack on the culture of any crypto community. We're just here to learn about how different people do things differently. Chill. Okay, so I think we can start with a a short introduction of yourself. Can you tell us who you are, what's Keystone, and how you got into crypto? Okay, Um, first, uh, thank you. Thank you again for having me here. I'm so glad to be here to share my personal experience and also uh, share something about Keystone and about how we see security both in crypto, uh, both in Bitcoin and Web3 community. Uh, So for me, I'm Li Xing. My name is Li Xing. I'm the CEO of Keystone Hardware Wallet. And uh, personally, uh, the first time I got to know Bitcoin was back in 2009. I still remember that was around the Christmas of 2009. Uh, at that time, I was in college and uh, that was our job job hunting season. So at that time, half of my time, I was uh, visiting different companies and go to uh, different conferences for job hunting. And the other half of the time, I was spending mostly online to search for new opportunities. And uh, also, I was a super heavy user of Google Reader at that time. So around 2009, my Google Reader, all the feeds uh, in my Google Reader were totally flooded by Bitcoin at that time. So that's I still remember that's around the Christmas of 2009. And uh, that's the first time I knew Bitcoin. And I learned about Bitcoin, about all their, uh, how it works under the hood. And uh, at that time, I thought Bitcoin is, was really, really cool. And uh, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's idea about Bitcoin is very uh, pioneering. And, uh, but after reading all those stuff, I, I didn't feel that uh, the consensus of Bitcoin can be reached because uh, I, I, I don't have too much confidence in that. So I didn't get into Bitcoin at that time. And then it time goes to 2013. Uh, at that time, I was uh, starting, I just started a startup in Shanghai together with some of my college, uh, college uh, classmates. 
and uh, they were graduated from uh, Stanford uh, computer science major uh, for their master degree. And uh, at that time, we were working on some kind of uh, AR augmented reality project at that time. And uh, one of them uh, told me that, hey, Lishin, you should check out Bitcoin. Uh, the price is going up. I remember that the price was around uh, 100 bucks uh, in 2013. And so I, 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 I thought that, oh, Bitcoin, I, I knew it. I checked it out long before. How's it going right now? So I checked the price. I went to Mongogs. And uh, surprisingly, I found that it uh, seemed like uh, the consensus of Bitcoin has been reached. And uh, the whole network is pretty solid and secure at that time. And a lot of people are buying Bitcoin at that time. So that's the first time I bought my Bitcoin in 2013. Um, but my, my own career didn't encounter with Bitcoin until 2017. Uh, before that, I was mostly working on a drone project and we were selling our drone uh, in the United States mostly. And uh, in 2017, I left the company and uh, I started to make hardware. So that's the, born, uh, that's the year when Keystone was born. Uh, and for the for the product, uh, and then because I was a Bitcoiner before, so after we starting uh, started to make the hardware wallet, uh, we put most of our time uh, dedicated to Bitcoin security, and we were deeply engaged in the Bitcoin maximalist community uh, in the United States as well as in the Europe, and we delivered some really uh, like really tough or really hardcore security features on our product. And the maximalist really, really loved that. Um, and in the middle of last year, we started to pivot to uh, Web3. And uh, uh, luckily, after we started working on Web3 for two months, uh, we, we got uh, green-lighted from uh, MetaMask to get our product integrated with MetaMask. So we released our integration with MetaMask uh, extension um, in uh, last December. And uh, just uh, two weeks ago, we also released the MetaMask mobile uh, integration. So our hardware wallet, Keystone, is the only cross-platform hardware wallet right now to work with uh, MetaMask. And uh, right now, we're also expanding our exposure in Web3 and uh, talking to other software wallets for integrations and uh, to, to better serve the community. So this is where I come from and where how uh, Keystone was born and where we are right now. Okay, so let us um, dive into the discussion by talking about Bitcoin and the world of Bitcoin maximalists. I want to start yeah. here, particularly because um, I recently read a very uh, interesting piece by Vitalik, which was um, yeah. strangely yeah. launched on the uh, yeah. 1st of April, April Fool's. Yeah titled In Defense of Bitcoin Maximalism. I think it's yeah. a little bit um, sad that in the Web3 community, um, Bitcoin maximalists are sort of considered to be outcasts. But I do think that they are right on the, they're right on certain issues. And Vitalik basically outlined why they think like that and why there's utility, there's good in how they think like that. So yes. to outline that, basically, um, Vitalik made several arguments as to why Bitcoin maximalism as annoying and as bewildering to those of us who are in the rest of DeFi and Web3 might seem. It is actually yeah. a very necessary and good ideology. So he wrote that Bitcoin and his maximalism mm -hmm. is like the file of Galadriel, a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. It is mm -hmm. a light that sacrifices all dimensions to optimize for one thing and one thing only, 
So I suppose my question is, what are what's inside the set of things that Bitcoin maximalists care most about? Okay, that's a that's a really really broad question. Uh, but first, I want to say that I I really love the standing point of Vitalik. Uh, I'm not sure if you know that Vitalik. Uh, when Vitalik joined the crypto community, uh, he worked for Bitcoin Magazine at that time. So he fully understand where does Bitcoin come from and what's the uh, what's the idea of Bitcoin and what's the thesis of Bitcoin? So he can totally understand that. And then he left Bitcoin Magazine and created Ethereum um, because of he he played a game and he was like trapped in that game. And so he started Ethereum to build up a a, a like a world computer so that people can uh, not only store their value on the blockchain but also run the code on the blockchain. And then comes with all the smart contracts, all the EVM, the DeFi, the NFT, everything. So uh, first, I, I really admire uh, Vitalik's standing point as he kind of, he should have been a Bitcoin maximalist at some time, at some point. And he knew totally about Satoshi Nakamoto's vision as well as the whole Bitcoin maximalist community. So I, I, I totally agree with what he, he wrote in that article. And for, for your question, uh, actually, Bitcoin maximalist, they're someone that's really different from Web3 community. Uh, for example, Bitcoin maximalists, uh, the Bitcoin community, or we call them Bitcoiners, they really, really care about decentralization and financial sovereignty. Uh, for example, uh, I can share some examples. Uh, Bitcoin maximalists are really, really proud that Satoshi Nakamoto disappeared. Because if you, if we know that Satoshi Nakamoto is somewhere in the middle of the United States, that's a huge single point failure for the whole Bitcoin community. And that's also damaging the decentralization of, uh, of Bitcoin and the whole thesis of Bitcoin. And also recently, uh, I saw a post on Twitter saying that uh, one of the guys, one of the core developers of uh, Bitcoin community, uh, once I think it's in back in two thousand twelve or two thousand eleven, uh, he po- he wrote a post on uh, the Bitcoin forum saying that I was invited, I'm invited by FBI to talk about Bitcoin, talk about how Bitcoin works, and. Uh, What's the vision of Bitcoin? This kind of stuff. So he does. He just disclosed that he's invited by FBI by that. And uh, the interesting part is after that post, Satoshi Nakamoto totally disappeared. So uh, this is also, I think, for this is very important for uh, some project like Bitcoin to be totally or to be maximized decentralized. And also, there's another saying. Uh, Bitcoin maximalists that they are really proud is that they are always saying that there is no marketing department in Bitcoin. So this means that this, uh, Bitcoin uh, spread the information, spread the consensus just based on people, real people, rather than no one's pushed by some VC, by some ventures, by token funds, or by some personal interest, by some personal like driven by money to promote Bitcoin, but people just uh, agrees with Bitcoin's value, agree with Bitcoin's vision so that people are promoting Bitcoin. That's that's really cool. And that's pushing 
Bitcoin more and more decentralized rather than uh, some kind of centralized project controlled by some VC or a small group of people, but on the surface telling people they're quote-unquote decentralized. So that's something Bitcoin maximalists are really, really proud of. And also, uh, they really, really care about uh, financial sovereignty. Uh, for example, uh, the people in Bitcoin community, they are really proud uh, when they want to quote-unquote attack Ethereum community. One thing they usually bring up is that uh, it's very hard for a... Uh, for someone to manage a Ethereum node by himself. So it's very costly and you need very big uh, hard drive as well as computer or some like other uh, equipment to maintain a Ethereum node. And also from uh, figures wise, Ethereum nodes are going down from time to time. But for Bitcoin, it's super, oh, not super. It's relatively easy for you to set up a Bitcoin node uh, it only costs like several hundred bucks. You just buy a Raspberry Pi and a SSD hard drive, and then you can run, and you have Wi-Fi, so and, uh, Wi-Fi or Ethernet, then you can run a Bitcoin node. So this is also related to the, the previous point I just shared about decentralization. If it's very easy for people to run a uh, node, not only just manage their own keys, but also run a node so that people can verify all the transactions by themselves, that's also part of the financial sovereignty considered by Bitcoin maximalist. So they're saying in Bitcoin maximalist that if you use a hardware wallet to manage your private key as well as running a Bitcoin node by yourself, then you are the quote unquote first class citizen in the citadel of Bitcoin. So that's very interesting among Bitcoin community. Uh, and also another thing uh, Bitcoin maximalists that they really care about is permissionless. Uh, permissionlessness, which means that they are always uh, seeking for like non-KYC services. So a real Bitcoin maximalist, if he wants to buy some Bitcoin, uh, he won't do that on Coinbase on, or other centralized services because those are KYC services. Usually they do on some offline or some Bitcoin ATMs or some platforms like BizKey so that they can buy Bitcoin without any KYC information. Uh, this is also, they're trying to maximize the privacy of their own uh, identity. So it's, it's totally different. The whole ideation, the whole methodology and thesis is different from the Web3 community as well as Ethereum. Yeah. I definitely um, find that kind of culture very appealing and very interesting. I, for one, bought my first, um, I didn't buy a whole Bitcoin, but I first bought my Bitcoin on uh, on a non-KYC platform called localbitcoins.com. So, oh. I yeah, I definitely uh, resonate with that and I understand how that works. And so I feel like, um, what we, what I would also be interested in understanding is that how does that kind of culture inform the view of Bitcoin maximalists towards um, other Web3 projects and the rest of crypto? Like, how do they see the rest of crypto and, and Ethereum mm -hmm. and all these other new chains that have come up? How do they view mm -hmm. them? Mm -hmm. Okay, so there are some um, Bitcoiners. Some Bitcoiners, they are really, really extreme 
so that they they really really hate uh, Web three and Ethereum. But for some other guys, uh, they love Bitcoin, and they also see Web three and see Ethereum from a more uh, like radical perspective. So like just like for me from my perspective, uh, why we started to tackle Web three to enter the Ethereum world is because I, I strongly feel that uh, even though uh, we cannot deny that. Even though there are a lot of scams in the Web3, in Ethereum, there are a lot of rug pulls, scams, and other hacks in the Web3 community. And the the user, um, the product are not very user-friendly. It's hard to understand, especially for those DeFi stuff. You can put layers upon layers. Uh, so, But I still feel that the most charming part of Web3 is innovation. So for Bitcoin, Bitcoin is more about steadiness, which means Bitcoin is trying to uh, achieve the goal that everyone on the world can easily secure their digital assets. And uh, that secure means really, really secured. So no one, no single point failure, no one can take away your assets. That's something Bitcoin is trying to achieve. So Bitcoin is really, really steady and it's becoming more and more robust. I can share an example. Uh, for example, some people, some developers in the Bitcoin community, they are looking into some problems. For example, if you download the Bitcoin call code from GitHub, and if you wanted to run that code before you run the Bitcoin call code on your computer, you need to compile that code into the machine code. And some of the Bitcoiners, they're looking into the problem that how to ensure that the compile tool working as expect, expected. So it compiles the Bitcoin core code you download from GitHub to generate something you really want. So they're looking these kind of uh, problems to make Bitcoin more and more robust and no one can hack it or no one can put some malicious stuff into Bitcoin. And that's why Bitcoin is trying to keep the whole system as simple as possible because uh, complicated complication is the biggest enemy for security, for robustness. So that's, that's where Bitcoin stands for. But that also limits uh, limited the um, imagination of the Bitcoin chain so that, uh, that's why, I think that's why, why Ethereum is so strong. Ethereum is taking a lot of people into the community because there are so many innovations on Ethereum. Um, for example, the DeFi, uh, the NFT, and right now the GameFi, and also other, other innovations. It's, it's really, really cool. And also uh, Ethereum community are heavily talking about signing with Ethereum, this kind of um, like, scenarios, user scenarios and applications. That's super cool. And uh, uh, also people are building DAOs uh, based on the thesis of Ethereum to, to run something. It's impossible to run uh, like 10 years ago, even with Bitcoin, for example, the constitution DAO. I really love that actually. And also that's the reason why we were convinced to start working on Web3 and the Ethereum community from a Bitcoin, from a Bitcoiner before. So that's how I see, how I view um, Bitcoin versus Web3 and how we were convinced into the Web3 community.
That is uh, very interesting. I definitely agree with the fact that uh, Ethereum is a lot more complicated than uh, from Bitcoin. Like, for example, Solidity's uh, language has yeah. like, what eight versions and uh, 14 subversions after the uh, eighth version. And for even transfer functions, there are already multiple iterations, and each one of them had prior problems. There are three types of data uh, storage, including storage memory and core data and it's not all of them are backwards compatible and yeah. then there's uh, like every single new iteration generates new problems and yeah. it's very difficult to keep up it's very difficult to keep up and for those who can keep up somehow they have a dis uh, asymmetric disadvantage and if they are naughty and they do something nasty that they yeah. can leverage that kind of knowledge to hack where i suppose bitcoin yeah. it's like very simple there's nothing here this is what you get. You can't hack it because there's nothing you can really do yeah. to to um, go through the nooks and crannies of things. I suppose yeah. um, I would like to follow this up with a question of how. So we've talked about the philosophy. We've talked about how thing they view things, how they view themselves, and how they view others. So mm. how does that philosophical outlook translate into action in terms of financial behavior and uh, perhaps security practices? So mm -hmm. what do they like? Like, what are, uh, what are some of the practices that they uh, engage in and encourage other others to engage in? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so first, I want to echo what you have just said about backward compatibility. There, there's another interesting fact that uh, in the development of Bitcoin, you can see that Bitcoin developers never do any hard fork. So it's mm -hmm. software fork as always. So... It's always, no matter how how important the feature is or how hard the development is, they're trying their best to put every improvement as a soft fork. But for Ethereum, I think it's relatively easy to make a decision that, oh, we should hard fork uh, the Ethereum to add some more features. And uh, yeah, I think those bring in innovation, but also Sometimes it's not steady, and sometimes it brings new attack factors for the hacker to uh, to hack the the users or hack the projects. Yeah, and uh, that's that's something I really want to echo to to for something you have just shared, and for your question about I the, I, I want to echo this as well. Like before yeah. we talk about the privacy um, the parts, like how uh, Bitcoiners. Uh, translate their philosophical outlook into privacy actions and financial behavior. I want to ask a further question to just follow mm -hmm. up on that. Do, yeah. um, for Bitcoiners who are not totally allergic or antagonistic to Ethereum, I presume if they're Bitcoin maximalists, they would like um, Ethereum Classic better? Mm, I think that's, that's, that's hard to say because... Okay. Um, yeah, for for me, uh, I, I'm 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 like half a Bitcoiner and half a Web three guy right now, and also I know some Bitcoin maximalists. They are converting into Web three, and uh, they see more and more value in Web three and in Ethereum. So I think it's it's really dynamic right now, and uh, mm -hmm. more and more people are getting open minded. And uh, also, we cannot deny that Bitcoin is also bringing new people into the community. Uh, because uh, like the thing in El Salvador, so that that's also mm. that's also a big thing for Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Okay. What's, mm. How does that philosophical outlook translate into financial behavior and privacy practices? Uh, okay, so 
uh, here, the, the first thing I want to share is that um, Bitcoin community and the Web3 community, um, they, they really, um, for just like you mentioned, for privacy, uh, they really see privacy from a different angle. And uh, it also applies to some of the schemes of how the, how the chains work and how the wallet work. Uh, for example, in, in Bitcoin community, uh, you, you know that Bitcoin is not uh, account model, but it's a UTXO model, right? So uh, that's uh, in UTXO model, uh, all the wallets, uh, they, when you wanted to use a software wallet to receive some Bitcoin, usually that wallet generate a new address for you. So it's not it's not suggested in the Bitcoin community to reuse your Bitcoin address, but generate a new address every time because it's a UTXO model. So even though you have tens of addresses with tens of UTXOs uh, for Bitcoin, it doesn't affect your transaction fees. And uh, But you can get a feature of um, uh, you, you abandon one address each time. So you are protecting your, your privacy. And also for privacy wise, on Ethereum, people are tend to use uh, several, one or even several or even one address as their Ethereum account because Ethereum is account model. So people are taking that account. Right now, people are taking that Ethereum account as their uh, like identity, uh, as their DID on chain. And the people are also using other uh, products, uh, other protocols like ENS. Uh, Actually, from a perspective of if, uh, from a perspective of privacy, that's a really bad practice, because if you are reusing one address every time, and if you're using ENS, that's exposing that's exposing some of your privacy, and uh, it's relatively easy for a hacker to uh, get your tracks and to understand what you're doing on chain and uh, to learn all the uh, financial activities you are working on chain. So that's the difference on privacy. Uh, and also another example for privacy, privacy is that uh, in Bitcoin community, especially for the Bitcoin maximalist, uh, they always use some kind of coin mix wallet. Uh, the most famous ones are Wasabi wallet and the Samurai wallet. Uh, for those two wallets, actually you can, when you are sending your Bitcoin, your Bitcoin is mixed with others' Bitcoin so that uh, services like chain analysis cannot easily track uh, who owns those uh, addresses or uh, how to or to hack them or for, for hackers or something like that. But in Ethereum community, people, um, I, I know there are some kind of coin mix services out there, for example, Tornado. But Tornado, to be very honest, there are very few users using Tornado right now. And also using Tornado will cost more for the transaction fees. And also using, uh, sometimes we see Tornado are like the hackers hack exchange and then put their Ethereum in the Tornado. So uh, few people are using that. And uh, most that's mostly, uh, that's designed mostly for um, people who care privacy, but the real situation is that the the real users are the hackers to use coin mix services like Tornado. Uh, but in Bitcoin community, just 
normal Bitcoin maximalists, they will use coin mix services. That's one thing on the uh, financial behavior difference. And uh, another thing is that in Bitcoin community, because um, people are always, uh, in Bitcoin, there's not too much innovation. And uh, people are always saying that people are always looking for a better solution to protect their Bitcoin, to protect their financial sovereignty. And uh, one result of that is that um, a lot of people in the Bitcoin community, they use multi-sig to protect their Bitcoin. And, uh, but in Ethereum community, if you want to use multi-sig, that's not easy to use. First, you need to use some kind of service like uh, Genosis Safe. Uh, uh, the second is you need to download a specific wallet made by Genosis team. And if you wanted to set up the multi-sig on Ethereum and then use that multi-sig to interact with other decentralized applications, uh, the transaction fees are much, much higher than if you're using a single SIG account of Ethereum. So that's the reason that very few people uh, in Ethereum community are using multi-sig. So the multi-sig are usually used by DAOs or by some token funds or by some enterprise users in the Ethereum community. But in Bitcoin community, a daily user will use uh, multi-sig to help uh, better protect their uh, their Bitcoin. And on the technical side, it's also different for Bitcoin multisig and the Ethereum multisig. On Bitcoin, uh, with Bitcoin, the multisig was naturally embedded on Bitcoin main chain. But in Ethereum, if you want to do multisig, actually that's a smart contract for multisig, which introduced a relatively bigger attack surface for the multisig. So I think those are the some of the basic difference for uh, the financial behavior in Bitcoin community and Ethereum community. Do you think we will eventually see DeFi built on top of Bitcoin? Um, I think mm -hmm. Stacks is one such attempt. The heavy use of Bitcoin as backing by the Terra blockchain, I suppose, is another. Arthur Hayes also wrote about the possibility of El Salvador issuing national debt instruments, paying out in Bitcoin or uh, collateralized by Bitcoin. Uh, surely, if hyper-Bitcoinization is inevitable, Bitcoin DeFi should also be inevitable. Um, will there be Bitcoin DeFi? Mm, that's a very good question. So uh, I think right now uh, in the Bitcoin community, uh, there are a lot of people uh, trying to, let's say, replicate um, the DeFi schemes in Ethereum community back to Bitcoin. Uh, some are using some layer two chains uh, with Bitcoin to realize that DeFi stuff. Uh, but to be very honest, uh, for me, from my perspective, I think uh, sci-fi built around Bitcoin will come first before DeFi built upon Bitcoin. Uh, for example, I really love the idea of uh, the, just you mentioned the national debt of uh, our Salvador. Uh, I, I think that because actually sci-fi is more user-friendly and easier for mass adoption if we put sci-fi and DeFi together. No matter how hard you, you put in, how hard work you put into DeFi, I think in the next few years, uh, the user experience cannot, the user experience of uh, DeFi cannot reach the same level as sci-fi. Uh, 
So I'm imagining a um, situation which is um, people are introduced into Bitcoin security, into Bitcoin community with those sci-fi product, uh, for sci-fi financial product, for example, ETF or the national debt I just mentioned. And uh, that's, I think that's the best bridge to introduce more people from the concept of the traditional financial world into Bitcoin. And uh, after that, I think some of them will get more, will get a better image, a, a clear image about Bitcoin. And then they may start to do like uh, self-custody or to run their own node, this kind of stuff. And uh, also another reason I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of DeFi on Bitcoin is that I still think that if you put DeFi on Bitcoin and DeFi on Ethereum as uh, two competitors, I think DeFi on Bitcoin cannot compete with DeFi on Ethereum because on Ethereum, as it's uh, you, it's tooling uh, 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 com compete. Uh, it, you you can you can do EVM coding on Ethereum so that you can put many different things together. For example, right now I know some projects they are working on DeFi for NFT. So uh, you can collateral your uh, valuable NFT like Bored and borrow some uh, Ethereum or some stable coins to work on other like financial services to put into other financial services. I think um, for Bitcoin, DeFi on Bitcoin, it's it's almost impossible to compete with that kind of almost infinity possibilities in the Ethereum community building on DeFi. Yeah. I suppose the problem is that the ship has sailed. Like yeah. uh, Ethereum has really um, amassed a huge amount of tooling. There's a lot of infrastructure already built. The code, um, the resources to learn how to code in Solidity has absolutely overwhelmed um, all other possibilities. Uh, what yeah. I feel is regrettable is that um, Bitcoin, it seems to be, uh, it, it will seem to be the only chain left that is proof of work. And I personally <laughs> feel, and I, I'm sure most uh, Bitcoiners agree with me, proof of work is yeah. one of the core reasons and core um, uh, uh, components in maintaining a high level of decentralization and openness for anybody to come to come in yeah. and participate, right? Because if it's yeah. proof of stake, you need to first onboard your fiat into Ethereum, which inevitably yeah. most likely involves a KYC centralized exchange. Whereas mm -hmm. for a work proof of work system, you can just literally go down to your com local computer shop and buy the necessary components and just set up at your home which makes you to be a truly sovereign individual. So that is a, a great pity. And I personally hope that there will be more proof of work um, mm -hmm. uh, chains out there in the future and who would be DeFi compatible. Um, let us talk about a little uh, something else. Let's talk a little yeah. bit about um, more about security best practices. To those okay. of us who are not very familiar with crypto security best practices or crypto hygiene, what would you recommend us to start doing first. So what are some security practices one can take a page out of the book of Bitcoin maximalists? Like what to do first? Okay. So uh, even though even though I'm, I'm selling hardware wallet and uh, I want to sell as many as possible, 
but I still want to share with you and with your audiences that uh, actually I'm sharing this on every AMAs and podcast, which is hardware wallet is not your civil bullet for security. So people people tend to because a lot of uh, influencers on Twitter are shouting out like you should buy a hardware wallet for security. You should have a hardware wallet. Uh, you should use hardware wallet with MetaMask, blah, 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 blah. But to be very honest, from a security perspective, hardware wallet is definitely not your silver bullet. Uh, the most important thing or the first step to start with, actually, it's very simple. I suggest everyone around me to read the book called Mastering Bitcoin. So first, you need to understand how everything works especially how a software wallet works. For example, how the recovery phrase or the seed phrase works, how it's derived into your mast private key and derived into your child private keys and extended public keys as well as your addresses. And how does the derivation path work? Everything like, like this and how does signing work? So. I think that's the most important thing before you start uh, self-custody your private keys. And another very interesting story I can share is that several days ago, uh, one of my friends asked me, uh, he told, she told me that she was hacked by a hacker. And uh, uh, she, she, she told me that uh, she took a picture of her recovery phrase in her mobile phone. And then I said, oh, most likely uh, your recovery phrase were hacked and were stolen by the hacker so that the hacker is, uh, can steal all your digital assets. So she was really shocked. She asked me that, oh, I, I just put my recovery phrase in my mobile phone, but I didn't share the, pa the, the password of my MetaMask. So she told me that the hacker doesn't know the password of her MetaMask. Then he then she said, "Why can can he hack me? He he doesn't have my password. So that's kind of maybe from you and my eyes that's ridiculous. But from a normal user, I think maybe a lot of user are thinking like this. So uh, I think the knowledge is the most important thing for everyone to start with. That's the that's the most important thing. And then." Another suggestion is that I wanted to uh, share with the people. I always say that you should be really, really careful with your recovery phase. Just like the, the case I shared, people just put their recovery phase in some random place, or even they just uh, put their, like write down their recovery phase in the, in the note application in their mobile phone, or even take a picture and put that on iCloud or or any, any other like cloud service for storage of the pictures, that's really, really dangerous. So the first thing I wanna share is, the second thing I wanna share is you should be really careful with your recovery phase. You should write it down or use some kind of product of the metal storages of the recovery phase. And you should protect it very well and don't take it out every time. Don't take it out very often. So once you, you hide it, uh, it's better than you never take it out because every time you take your recoveries out of the shelf uh, or out of your 
somewhere you hide it, it's kind of risky for someone to know where you hide your recovery place. So that's really, really important. And uh, another thing I, I really want to share is that um, uh, people, people are underestimating uh, in Web3 community, uh, people are underestimating the importance of sign a transaction. So a lot of friends around me, when the MetaMask or the hardware wallet ask them to sign a transaction, they just simply sign that transaction without looking into what's the transaction, or what's the software asking to sign. A, a very interesting fact is that in the physical world, when you are trying to sign a document, you have a perfect sense. Usually you have a perfect sense to read about the agreement, what the agreement says, what's the privileges and uh, uh, do I need to, what's the, what's the situation? What's the result if I break those rules? People are really sensitive about that. But when it comes to Web3 world, people are much less sensitive about signing. So that's, that's really important. And that's something I really want to share with you guys. So when you are signing a transaction, be really careful with what you are signing because any malicious signing could uh, make you, sometimes the, the hacker just makes some changes or uh, trying to hack you through phishing sites. And with that signing the transaction, they don't need to steal your private keys. They don't need to steal your cover phrase. They can steal all, then they can steal all your digital assets remotely. So that's also very dangerous. So that's something I want to share. And uh, um, based on your mm, your digital assets, you can also consider buying a hardware wallet uh, to protect you from other hacks, like uh, some iCloud hacks, something like that. Yeah. So um, I think that provides us a very good uh, uh, springboard to talk a little bit more about why one should buy a hardware wallet. Like, what is why buy one? Why buy one? Mm, so the first thing I want to share is that uh, if you just use a software wallet, for example, uh, if you use your just your software wallet, uh, first the concept I want to share is that uh, there's no absolute security in this world. So security is always a relative concept, which means there's only relatively secure rather than absolute secure. Everything you do is not a perfect solution. Everything you do is simply building up the cost for a hacker to hack you. So you can assume that hackers are someone very, uh, very reasonable and very simple. They just do a simple mess. If they can steal $1 million crypto assets from you and the cost for them is like $10,000, of course they will do it. But if they want they, they hack you with a cost of like $10 million, but the result is only get like $1 million crypto assets, then no hacker in this on this planet will do it. So it's mm. it's just simple mess. So for an everyday user, what you do is building up the cost for a hacker to hack you. So if you put a hardware wallet versus a software wallet uh, together. The first thing you should understand is that uh, even, even though you're using a Trezor, because Trezor are blamed by the community that there's no secure element in the Trezor. Even though you're using a Trezor, it's also relatively safer 
than just using a software wallet. Because using a software wallet, um, you are putting your private keys in the software and your software is connected to the internet. Um, there's, uh, there's one project called uh, Nexus Mutual. Uh, all the whale users, and just like I mentioned, Ethereum Web3 users are not so sensitive about privacy. So it's very easy for a hacker to find you through your Twitter handle, through the locations you share on social media, uh, through your ENS, uh, through your email account, this kind of thing. They can find your IP and they can hack you remotely easily. So in those kind of situations, uh, to have a better protection, you should have a hardware and put your recovery phrase, put your uh, put your seed in that hardware rather than in a software. So that's something uh, I want to share from a like general perspective. Uh, but if we if we look into deeper into those attack vectors, uh, for example, recently uh, a uh, iPhone user was hacked. Uh, a, uh, no, no, a, a, a MacBook user was hacked because when he was using MetaMask, he just duplicated the uh, private keys uh, into iCloud by the MetaMask. And in that case, even though the recovery phase of MetaMask was encrypted by the password of the MetaMask, but the problem is people are tend to use people tend to use the same password for different platforms. And then the hacker and uh, maybe his password was leaked by some other hack incidents of some other websites, but the hacker knew his uh, his common password he usually used. So the hacker hacked his iCloud and get the uh, encrypted uh, encrypted files of the MetaMask and then use his uh, normal password to decrypt that file so that the hacker still, if I remember correctly, it was around $650,000 of crypto assets. Oh, so wow. that's a, yeah, that's a huge loss for normal people. Yeah. And uh, also there are some other attack services. Uh, for example, right now, uh, that's a little bit techy, um, but right now some of the, most of the wallets are built upon JavaScript. And uh, when a developer developing a JavaScript uh, uh, application, one thing almost everyone will use is NPM. So NPM is a like uh, package management tool for the developers. They don't need to uh, rebuild. They don't need to uh, rebuild the wheel every time. They just download a like commonly used NPM uh, package from the uh, from the NPM NPM management tool, package management tool, so that they can easily build their application upon those code. And actually, that's also another big attack surface, uh, big attack surface. Uh, I just read a post by a security research company saying that they found a NPM in the NPM pool, which is uh, generating the which is used for private key generation. And they found one line of malicious code that after generation the recovery phrase, the, the NPM will upload the recovery phrase into the hacker's uh, Amazon cloud. So 
if you use that, if you use a software wallet that use that specific NPM, and then your recovery phase was totally leaked to the hacker. So if you use a software wallet, there's, there's a lot of this kind of attack surfaces. And also, for example, if you use software wallet, another common mistake is that people may copy paste their uh, recovery phase from the software wallet to, to someone else. And then the clipboard of your computer uh, can be hacked by a third party application. Maybe it's another application. Maybe it's a very uh, like niche application. You randomly download it from the internet and that application has the access to your clipboard. So when you are copying your recovery phrase or something, um, the application can hijack your clipboard and get your recovery phrase. So all these are different kinds of attack surfaces. And uh, overall, to avoid those attack surfaces on your laptop or on your mobile phone, it's relatively safer to use a hardware wallet to protect your recovery phrase. That's a lot of um, attack vectors. So, yeah. how did those? Um, how did all that um, factor into the design of Keystone? How did that um, affect you in your design philosophy? Okay. Okay. So, for the for the design philosophy of Keystone, actually, um, when we started to build Keystone, we did some uh, user research. Uh, for example. Uh, I asked, I interviewed a lot of Ledger users. Uh, the first question I asked them is that, or one of the most important questions I asked them is that, what's the most anxious time when you're using your Ledger? The, answer, the answers were pretty aligned. Almost everyone told me that there are two moments they were super anxious about. The first moment is when they are trying to type in all the recovery phase on their ledger. That's the first most anxious time when they're when they were using their ledger. The second anxious time is that when they are plugging their ledger into the computer, they are also super anxious because they don't know what information is getting to their ledger through the USB cable. They don't know what's information getting out of the uh, ledger through the USB cable. So after that interview with those Ledger users, we have some very early uh, rough ideas about Keystone. So first thing we want to do is that we decided that Keystone should have a big touch screen because, uh, uh, because obviously the big touch screen can improve the user experience of uh, typing the recovery phrase, but the big touch screen can also uh, significantly improve the user experience of the whole interaction with the hardware wallet. And uh, um, we see that user experience is super important for security because um, human error is the biggest reason for crypto loss. So user experience is very important. And also some of the users we interviewed, they were Ledger users before. But after they bought Ledger, they felt that this little device was so hard to use. So they just put that away, put that in the drawer so that they no longer use that. That's also some kind of compromise on their security because 
they cannot bear the user experience of nature. So that's why we have the first big decision is adding a big touchscreen. And also uh, that can make the user very easily to migrate from a mobile phone to our device because the user, the user experience is very close to your mobile phone experience. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing about the USB cable, uh, we also agree with those users that um, that people have confidence or people have the feeling of security because uh, transparency is really important because they know what's uh, happening uh, under the hood. And that's why we have the feature of QR code signing, which means that we use QR code to transfer those information between your software wallet, like your MetaMask and your Keystone. And all the uh, QR codes are non-encrypted so that you can decode that QR code with open source tools. And if you want, you can know exactly what's getting into your hardware wallet and what's getting out of your hardware wallet. So we really love the idea of Keystone because it brings the transparency uh, for the user. So users are more confident about using the product. People are more confident about using, um, about to interact with the, the hardware wallet. And another big benefit of QR code is that QR code has much less connectivity issues compared to USB. So if you are a Ledger user, you must know that after you get your Ledger connected to your laptop, Sometimes the, 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 the portal was not very tight and you, you, you slightly touch the USB cable and the connection was broken. And then you need to remove it. You need to unplug it and plug in again and to type the, type the pin code of your ledger and to restart everything. So that's really bad user experience. And uh, it's not for, that's even hurting the, hardware wallet adoption for the mass mass users. Uh, that's why we have the QR code, uh, which has much less connectivity, connectivity issues compared to USB. And another huge benefit of QR code is that QR code is cross-platform compatible. And from the example of integration with MetaMask, we are integrated with not only MetaMask extension, but also MetaMask mobile, which means that if you want to use Keystone, if you wanted to manage your digital assets on your laptop, you can easily do that. Or if you wanted to use that, if you want to do that on the go, maybe out of your office, out of your home, you can still do that with Keystone plus your mobile phone. And you don't need to uh, like import your recovery phase into MetaMask Mobile. And you don't need to compromise your security, but doing all the signing, all the uh, digital assets management on the go. So that's why we the, the biggest differences between our product and the ledger is that we have a big touch screen to improve the UX and the lower the possibility for human error. And we use QR code to uh, interact with software wallet as uh, such as MetaMask. Yeah, that's the main difference. The biggest difference as well as the design philosophies behind our product. Yeah. 
Um, you mentioned before about this idea of blind signing. Can you uh, yeah. discuss a little bit more about how, like, what it is, how to, what are some best practices to not do it, and uh, what are some parts of your product that prevent us from doing something that I presume in the Bitcoin maximalist community would consider to be extremely stupid? Yeah, yeah. So actually, I think you must heard of one model, which is. Uh, one motto, which is don't trust, verify. This also, don't trust, verify also applies to when you're using a hardware wallet. So basically, a hardware wallet, if you are using a hardware wallet, basically, you are assuming that your software wallet is not enough. So that you, for every transaction, your software wallet ask your hardware wallet to sign you need to manually check all the information of this transaction and then sign the transaction on your hardware wallet. You always assume your software wallet is not safe and your software wallet can be hacked and all the signing information can be swapped into, uh, into the hacker's information. Uh, one thing I can share, uh, one interesting fact I can share is that the very, very first generation of Ledger there's no screen on Ledger. You just have buttons on Ledger, but no screen. That's heavily blamed by the Bitcoiners because the Bitcoiners buy a hardware wallet. They just want to view the details of the transaction. For example, who am I sending to? And what is the change address? And how much is the transaction fee? This, this kind of key information on the device, and then they can confirm and they can sign. But at that time, the very first generation of Ledger, they don't have a screen to realize that. And then comes with Ledger Nano S, it comes with a small screen so that you can check some basic information of the transaction. Uh, but, but, blockchain, but blockchain is developing really, really fast. Nowadays, uh, I think people's uh, interaction with blockchain is not only sending and receiving your crypto, but also interactions with smart contract, for example, with DeFi and with uh, NFT. Uh, for example, let's take, uh, everyone knows Uniswap. Let's take Uniswap as an example. When you are signing, for example, you are swapping your Ethereum, uh, your W Ethereum or your Ethereum into uh, USDT, USDC on, Unis on Uniswap, actually you are sending a transaction to interact with the Uniswap smart contract. And uh, at the same time, you need to tell the smart contract what you want to do with this smart con contract. For example, you are swapping your Ethereum to uh, your USDC that's something you need to tell the smart contract to do. And also that's something, that's some of the, we call it input data or parameters you are sending to the Uniswap smart contract. And one of the most important parameter you send to Uniswap smart contract is that the receiving address of this swapping interaction. So blind signing means that when you are signing a Uniswap transaction on Ledger, you can only confirm the smart contract address of Uniswap. You are doing swapping, but you cannot confirm the 
destination address of you receiving the crypto after this swapping interaction. That's blind signing. And that means that if the hacker can hack your MetaMask and the hacker can change the destination address of this swapping into the hacker's own address. And then after this swapping, all the USDC will go to the hacker's address, but you cannot verify that on Ledger, you just blindly sign the transaction and all your crypto go to, all your USDC go to the hacker's place, go to the hacker's address. And this is not something just in theory, actually in late 2020, uh, a, a very famous project called Nexus Mutual. The CEO of Nexus Mutual uh, was encountered into this situation. Uh, his MetaMask was hacked and the, the hacker tricked him into blind signing a, uh, I'm not sure what's the exact transaction was, but it was a smart contract transaction. And the, the hacker swapped some of the key parameters of that transaction and uh, the CEO of Nexus Mutual got hacked for eight million, over $8 million at that time. Right now, I think that crypto worth around $20 million to $30 million. That is uh, certainly a huge hack. So You were shocked, like, right? Yeah, I am. I am. Like, it's an inordinate amount of money. So yeah. definitely uh, something that we should uh, not really do blind signing. So yeah. I think um, another question that we might want to uh, learn about is that how should we organize our wallets? Like if you have like mm. um, a, a hundred wallets, Great. how yeah. do you organize them? Do you have any uh, rule of thumbs uh, that we should, you would suggest to the ordinary user? The... Okay, okay. Uh, first, I want to share a general idea which is uh, a a uh, a more secure solution is always less user friendly so when you are for example if i give you for example if we make a hardware wallet for uh for some military use or for the u.s government maybe that hardware wallet is super complicated to use and comes with like a 100 pages menu for you how to use that hardware wallet. That's impossible for a daily user. But I just wanted to convey the, the, the information to convey the understanding that there's always a conflict between security and the user experience. So when it comes to uh, how you design or how you use wallets, it, it applies to the same situation. For example, right now you are using, you are playing a game five, and uh, that game five, for example, you are playing uh, DeFi Kingdoms, and uh, you are signing like uh, ten times, let's say ten times an hour, or like twenty times an hour. In those kind of situation, using a hardware wallet will sacrifice your user experience. Or, for example, you are trying to mint an NFT, uh, uh, mint an NFT on, uh, in public when it just published to the public. And you need to finish that within like several seconds. In those situations, it's not suitable to use a hardware wallet because hardware wallet is safer, but the user, user experience is always 
more complicated and not that quick or easy to use. So a general suggestion is that uh, also I, I see a lot of people are doing this uh, in the community right now. They have several wallets. Uh, for example, they can just put some of their pocket money into a MetaMask and uh, just uh, use MetaMask as the uh, software wallet solely so that it can quickly interact with some like GameFi projects or they wanted to mint an NFT in several seconds. That's also one scenario. And for example, if you wanted to protect your body, uh, that's worth over like uh, $300,000 uh, $300, right now. Then you can put that uh, body into an address and the address private keys were protected by your hardware wallet. So I, I strongly recommend people that you should have your, we call it hot wallet and the cold wallet. So you put your pocket money in a hot wallet or you just use that on a daily basis or sign the transaction very easily. But for your valuable digital assets, you just put that into, uh, into the addresses that the private keys of those addresses will held are held in your hardware wallet. So that's a general general um, suggestion for the people who want to protect their digital assets. And if you wanted to have some even deeper protection for digital assets, you can also leverage other uh, features or other products like Multisig. You can use Gnosis Safe to do Multisig to better protect your hardware wallet, to better protect your digital assets. So I, that is a um, great um, answer. I've, I think, um, can you tell, I think uh, in, in, when I read some of your uh, articles about how yes. to, um, about some of your features, I came across this very interesting feature called Shamir Backups. I think yep. it reminded me uh, about how uh, Vitaly Buterin split his seed phrase into two parts. One yep. he gave to his parents and one he kept for himself. And mm -hmm. Uh, one of the troubles with, with that arrangement was that um, when I think was it the Xi people or is it the Doge people sent almost half of the supply to his wallet, he couldn't really withdraw it and then send it out somewhere else. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I suppose can you tell me a little bit more about um, a Keystone's um, feature, Shamir backups, and how does that factor into your design philosophy and what is basically what is it? Okay, so um, here the the basic. Uh, we, we, we also did some user uh, research about how people protect their recovery phase. So uh, people usually, uh, some people, they just have one um, replication. They just have one copy of their recovery phase and hide that at their, in the home. And uh, uh, that's not very good because, uh, for example, if your house got, got on fire, and then your recovery phase will totally burn. Um, and some people, they replicate their recovery phase and put that in different places. For example, one copy at home, one copy in the office. Uh, that's, a, that's something uh, a little bit better than the previous one because it prevents some natural disasters, some attack services, some attack vectors of natural disasters. But that also increased the possibility of theft so you just simply replicate everything in different places and uh, it's more likely you will get stolen. Yeah. And uh, some of people, they want to uh, 
Uh, some people, they also told us they really wanted to put their recovery phase in their uh, friend's place, but they, they cannot just simply replicate that because uh, their friends may have some malicious actions on them about stealing their crypto assets. So then some people, uh, they split their recovery phase. For example, there's 24 words and then they put like 16 words uh, at home and another 16 words at one of his friend's place. This is, this is also, this is okay to use actually, but you should be really careful if you're using 12 words recovery phrase. If you're using 12 words recovery phrase and you put six words uh, in your friend's place, so the, your friend can brute force attack for the other six words. And that's really dangerous. And uh, after our calculation, if you use a mining rig to do that brute, fo brute force, force attack, it only takes a mining rig, a modern mining rig, less than five minutes to get your recovery phase, to brute force attack your recovery phase. So that's not dangerous. Uh, that, that's, not, that's not safe. That's really risky. But if you're using... 24 words and uh, uh, brutal force attack 12 words, that's not easy. And that takes, if I remember correctly, I think that takes around uh, like one, a uh, uh, hundred million dollars to one billion dollars of the cost to brutal force attack because we do the calculation based on how much electricity the mining rig will cost to brutal force attack that. So that's the thing. And then we come for a better solution, which is Shamir Backup. Basically, Shamir Backup is based on the uh, cryptographic algorithm called uh, Shamir Secret Sharing. So it can split your recovery phase into several shares. And for example, you can set as five shares. You can also set that at least the three shares can reconstruct your recovery phase. With this, if your friend wanted, even though uh, they have like one piece or one share of your backup, of your Shamir backups, they cannot do that. Or uh, they can have two shares. Maybe they steal another share from your office. They can still not do that because you set the threshold as three out of five, then you can reconstruct the recovery phase. So this is Shamir backup. And also our uh, solution for uh, Shamir Backup is compatible with Trezor, which means that uh, if one day your keystone is broken and you cannot easily buy a keystone from a vendor or from us, then you can purchase a uh, Trezor and we use the same algorithm at Trezor. So with the same recovery phrase, with the same Shamir Backup, you can get exactly the same private keys and uh, exactly the same Ethereum addresses, accounts, this kind of thing. So that's Shamir backup. And also there are some uh, downsides of Shamir backup. One big downside, one big uh, con is that right now only, only Trezor and our product implement Shamir backup. So we're also looking forward that many software wallets, they also implement this so that the solution is more compatible, is more universal and it's less possible for people to get a single point failure on this kind of situation. I see. I think we're uh, nearing the end. 
of our uh, podcast, this part of okay. the episode. So before I close, mm-hmm. I suppose it's sort of a rite of passage. It's just the standard question we must all ask to any mm-hmm. Bitcoiner. Who mm-hmm. do you think is Satoshi Nakamoto? <laughs> Who do I think is Satoshi Nakamoto? Actually, I, I really wanted don't make the guess. And uh, I wanted to encourage everyone to forget about Satoshi Nakamoto because in just like I mentioned in a Bitcoiner's eyes, it's really important to avoid a single point of failure. It's really important to be decentralized, uh, as decentralized as possible. And that's the ultimate uh, path to get financial sovereignty and to get your privacy, to get protected for your digital assets. So, yeah, I just wanted to, I, I don't want to make the guess. And uh, I, I don't think, uh, and I, I also don't want to Satoshi Nakamoto to appear one day. I just, I, I just wanted to avoid this single point failure. Thank you. I think that's a Thank perfectly you. valid answer. That's a perfectly <laughs> valid answer. And I, uh, I absolutely understand um, the, where that is from. Well, thank you very much, Lisi, for answering my questions and coming on to the Pyrite podcast. Well, dear listener, mm-hmm. if you found this interesting, please subscribe and turn on notifications for the Pyrite podcast. Subscribe to us on YouTube and on Spotify. Follow Keystone protocol. Uh, follow Keystone. Buy their product if you might, if you want to. Uh, find find out about their uh, work on Twitter, Medium, and Discord. Um, thank you for listening, and we will soon see you all again sometime in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.